Hi, this is Nate Wessler from the ACLU. You're listening to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker. Today, we have episode 283 for August 1st, 2022, starting another month. This year is flying by. I cannot believe it. Uh, we've got a really great interview for you today. We're going to be talking to Nate Wessler, who I've had on the show before uh, several years back. It's been way too long. I'm really glad to have Nate back. He's with the ACLU. I talked with him a while back on the Carpenter decision, which he argued successfully in front of the Supreme Court which was a great case. And we talk a little bit about that today, but we're going to talk about facial recognition in particular today. Uh, we'll talk about Clearview AI because it's hard to have a conversation these days about facial recognition without bringing them into this, but we'll talk about more than just that. But it's it's gotten to the point where there's just, there's no place left to hide. That we, we have to expect now when we are out and about in public that there are cameras somewhere. And unlike the old days where these cameras were just, you know, putting on some, VHS tape loop that some human would have to then go back through and try to recognize people. These things are all cloud-based now and the storage allows the digital content to be saved basically forever. And then layer on top of that, the fact that we have this facial recognition technology that can, thanks to social media, can identify just about anybody from a, a photo or a video. It's really gotten scary. And the technology is getting better and our laws are just not keeping up. So we're going to talk with Nate about that today. A couple of real quick things. My DEF CON talk has been scheduled. I don't know how many of you in the audience might actually be there, but if you are, it'll be uh, Saturday, 3.30 p.m. I'd actually uh, told my patrons in a separate private podcast that it was going to be Friday, but they rescheduled me. So since then, it has changed. So it is 3.30 p.m. local time in Vegas on Saturday, August 13th at the Crypto and Privacy Village. Uh, really looking forward to that. I also, because I'm planning to interview Jeff Moss and some other folks while I'm there at DEF CON and bringing that back to you guys, uh, I just upgraded my portable recording equipment. I got a couple of really nice mics. I got a nice portable uh, multi-track recorder that should be coming tomorrow. So with any kind of luck, I will be able to bring you some really nice high quality audio uh, back from DEF CON. All right, one more thing before we get to the interview, I, I did mention a 411 service. And for those of you who are not in the United States or <laughs> might be too young to remember, 411 is an information service. And in the US, 911 is for emergencies, and we've got a few other ones like that. 411 was for info. And you know, you would say, I, I, I want to get the 411 on that. And, you know, that meant you want to get information. Of course, what that really means in the US, and, and no one does this anymore, is you would actually like kind of call an operator and you'd say, I want to look up a phone number or give me the number for this business or something like that. Uh, and it, over the years, it became automated, of course. But when I say 411, then that is what I'm referring to. All right, so enough preamble. Let's get to our interview with Nate Wessler. Nate Wessler is a deputy director with the ACLU's Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project, where he focuses on litigation and advocacy around uh, surveillance and privacy issues, including government searches of electronic devices, requests for sensitive data held by third parties, and the use of surveillance technologies. Welcome back to the show, Nate. It's been way too long. Thanks so much. I'm really pleased to be here. All right. So before we get started, why don't you tell us a little bit about the ACLU in particular? I mean, I think a lot of people have heard of them and they probably think more free speech stuff. But what's the ACLU done in the realms of privacy rights in particular? And then what is your role there at the ACLU? 
Yeah, so the, the ACLU has been around for more than a century and is pretty unique in terms of, of American civil rights and civil liberties organizations in just the incredible breadth of, of issues and areas that we work on. So I work in our national office in what we call our speech privacy and technology project, where we have a team of attorneys and uh, and policy analysts and others who work on a mix of free speech issues and privacy issues, and particularly uh, as both of those touch the digital age. You know, the, the organization also has teams of people working on racial justice, on women's rights, on reproductive freedom, uh, national security, civil rights and civil liberties issues, disability rights, and, and a lot more. Um, there's often overlap uh, between that work, and there's a lot of complementary work that happens and is able to happen in an organization that has experts in, in such a wide variety of areas. Um, but I really focus on questions around privacy in the digital age as part of a, a team here of really fantastic folks you know, whose job it is to largely to try to take uh, statutes and parts of our constitution that were written a long time ago and make sure that they are robustly interpreted in the digital age. A lot of my work involves uh, trying to limit government access to our sensitive records or government use of various surveillance technologies uh, in ways that protect our privacy and to try to, to help courts understand how to interpret the Fourth Amendment, which is you know, this, this sentence that was written more than 200 years ago <laughs> in a context that nobody at the time right. could have imagined. Um, right. Then I also do, and my colleagues do, uh, increasing work around uh, privacy statutes um, as they apply to government, but also uh, as they apply to private companies and trying to make sure that we, as people in this country, are able to maintain uh, a sphere of privacy and autonomy in our lives as the technological capabilities to collect incredible information about us just grow and grow and grow. Yeah. Now you had to, you actually argued and won a case in front of the Supreme Court uh, in this area. Tell us just briefly uh, about that case. Yeah, that case is called Carpenter versus United States, uh, and it's the question there is about how the Fourth Amendment protects our cell phone location history held by our phone company, Verizon or AT and T or T Mobile. And you know, our, our phones are communication devices, but they also turn out to really be tracking devices. <laughs> yeah. And you know the way a cell phone communicates with the network is through radio signals to a cell tower. And it turns out that uh, the cell phone companies maintain a record of every tower and every directional antenna, what's called a sector of that tower, your phone is talking to at any given time. Uh, and they need those records for, for business reasons, for sure. um, quality control, to figure out if there are dropped signals, for billing purposes. It's a little, you know, it used to be that there were, you would have uh, you know, a geographical area that was covered by your plan, and then you would be roaming other places, right. and they would have to cell companies have to charge each other depending where you are. Those dynamics are a little different, but the cell companies still need to have a record for some amount of time of of where your phone was at various times when it's making calls or sending text messages or receiving calls or text messages or just making data connections. You know, you're automatically checking the weather update, emails coming in, etc. So it's a lot of location information, and in dense urban and, and suburban areas where there are a lot of cell towers because there are a lot of people, it means that the coverage of every particular cell tower is relatively small, which means that having a record of which tower and which directional antenna on that tower your phone is talking to at any given time can paint this really rich picture of where you've been over time, uh, really this, this kind of like detailed map of, of our comings and goings. This has not gone unnoticed by law enforcement. And yeah. over the past couple of decades, uh, it has become a really common and favored investigative technique of law enforcement to make a request to a cell phone company for somebody's location history in order to figure out if they were near the scene of a particular crime around the time of that crime. Uh, really valuable and, and really convincing evidence to a jury. 
but also really invasive if if done without the right oversight and controls. And so this case was about whether police need a search warrant from a judge uh, based on a showing a probable cause before they can make the cell phone company turn over your location history. And the government's argument was that uh, before this this case, before this decision, was that no, they didn't, relying on this old 1970s legal doctrine uh, called the third party doctrine mm-hmm. that basically says, eh, when, when you as a person have shared your information or your records with a, a company, you've given up your privacy interest in it. Um, <laughs> right. There was a case in the 70s about bank records and the Supreme Court said, look, if, if cops are investigating you for dodging your taxes and they go ask your bank for your canceled checks and your account statements, those are the bank's records, not yours. Too bad for you. Mm. Another case about dialed telephone numbers where police went to to get a record of every phone number a particular person called over time. Uh, and the person said, this, you know, this chart's an incredible picture of of my contacts <laughs> and my my life. And the yeah. Supreme Court said, too bad. You made the decision to dial those numbers for your rotary phone, knowing that it would route through the phone company to collect your call. These are now the company's business records. You've given up your privacy interest. We at the ACLU thought that was the wrong rule in the 1970s. But our argument to the Supreme Court in this Carpenter case was that whatever it means about those older kinds of records that existed pre, pre-digital age, uh, you can't just mechanically mash that rule onto these right. incredibly rich location records. And the Supreme Court agreed with us and said, these are just different. They're different because they can paint such a detailed personal picture of all of your privacies of life, you know, right. romantic, a relational, you know, if you go to a psychiatrist's office or an AA meeting or a liquor store, I mean, you name right. it, you can tell it from these. Um, and because nobody's making a decision actually to opt in to this tracking, right? right? Like in modern society, you really need a cell phone for family, for work, for yeah. emergencies, et cetera. And once you have a cell phone, it tracks your location. You don't have to do anything and you can't stop that unless you turn, you know, put it into airplane mode, at which point you have a very expensive paperweight in your pocket. Nobody's <laughs> right. going to do that. Uh, and so for those twin reasons, the sensitivity in the information and the fact that we really can't avoid its collection, the Supreme Court said, this is different. This requires protections. A warrant is required. All right. So today we're going to talk about specifically facial recognition technology. And uh, with cloud-connected video cameras popping up everywhere, we now have to assume that we could be identified basically anywhere we go. And this is kind of a recent thing. I mean, you know, we've had closed-circuit television and closed-circuit, you know, security cameras for a while in the classic Law & Order shows. You know, you'd go over to the bodega across the street and say if they happen to have their thing and if the tape hasn't been overwritten yet, right? Well, now these are all cloud-connected, so it's being stored up in the cloud by central third-party services potentially forever. And now they can. we've got facial recognition technology, which could be looking at those videos and trying to identify us. So... What legal expectation of privacy do we have now when we're walking around in public spaces? And then contrast that maybe with private spaces or even governmental spaces. Like, you know, if I'm at a train station or a government building, there's cameras there too. So should I be worried about this as I'm walking around? What should I be thinking in terms of how private I am when I'm just out in public? Yeah, um, we should definitely be worried about it. You know, I think the starting place here is just to understand what the the change in technology means means for how how invasive the surveillance is, um, and then from there we can talk about what the law actually says about it. So yes, closed circuit television, security cameras—they've been along around for a long time, but they've always been dumb systems, right? right? By which I mean, you know, you had to have a human go and watch the footage in effectively real time, right? You could push fast forward, but like somebody has to have eyes on that either as it's being recorded, or you go and pull the VHS tape or the digital recording 
today and you actually have to watch it. Uh, and that's resource intensive. And that means that even in places that had a lot of surveillance video coverage, it was unlikely for that to be used in a kind of dragnet way, right? Mm-hmm. For, for somebody to actually be watching it all the time. Right. Humans don't have the intention, even if you had enough people to watch it, people's attention flags. There are lots, lots of research about how you know, you have to, somebody watching surveillance video has to take a little break every 15 minutes or they just start missing things. Right. Yeah. Uh, so there was just a real human limitation right, on right. how invasive that could be. Once you start hooking up basically these machine learning algorithms, you know, so-called artificial intelligence systems that can automatically try to identify people and then potentially even try to track people from camera frame to camera frame to camera frame, right. If you have a network of cameras, right. What's happening is you're, you are lowering the cost in both dollars and human hours radically, and you are enabling a type of surveillance that never in the human, uh, the history of human civilization have we had to deal with, right? It just so upends the balance of people's expectations about what practically you could rely on, right? Practically, we think that we can maintain some anonymity out in public uh, because sure, we might be recognized by a neighbor who's walking by. Sure, somebody might snap a picture of us. Sure, we might be captured on a store security camera as we walk by, but we've never expected that we would be instantaneously identified by every camera that walked by and that footage stored and was searchable and could be knitted together with all the other footage to track our, our progress over time. So that's, that's why this is different than, than what we've dealt with in, in previous generations and, and even just a few years ago. Uh, and what the law says about it is, is unsettled in a lot of places. Um, you know, there are different legal frameworks, whether we're talking about law enforcement or about private actors, mm. companies, mm-hmm. individuals. When it's talking about law enforcement, there are some some statutes in some places uh, that legislatures or Congress have passed. But largely, we're often talking about the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution, which is the provision that deals with searches and seizures and says that um, the government, including the police, can't unreasonably gather our private information effectively and requires a warrant for the most invasive types of searches. And so... You know, there are real, real questions that courts are only just beginning to grapple with about what that means when it comes to face recognition technology. There are some cities we know of in the U.S. where police have run limited trials of the kind of real-time face recognition tracking hooked up to surveillance cameras. I don't know of any city that has actually turned that on in a kind of comprehensive way. Uh, you know, Chicago and Detroit and maybe other cities have purchased that capability, but apparently have not tried to turn it on comprehensively. Um, if they did we would be in court very quickly and actually using the precedent from that Supreme Court case we talked about earlier, the Carpenter case, which is all about location tracking. Mm. And we would be saying, this is location tracking just by a different method, using face recognition capability to identify people as they walk around and track them from, from camera to camera to camera. And that is so invasive that the Fourth Amendment has something to say about it and needs to be limited. You know, there, there are also a number of of cities and states in the country that have decided they're just going to ban law enforcement use of face recognition mm. technology because it's so dangerous, both because of the potential for pervasive tracking and because of the inaccuracies inaccuracies in the system, right? These are, it's not perfect. Uh, these are kind of best guesses of a algorithm that was trained on a bunch of training data. Uh, it turns out that they get it wrong much more often with people of color, with darker skinned mm, people right. and yep. with women and with younger people and with older people. And so the potential for false arrests is really serious. And a lot of uh, cities from you know Boston to San Francisco to the county surrounding Seattle to Jackson, Mississippi, New Orleans, Minneapolis, the state of Vermont have just said, you know what, this is too dangerous for police. They can't have it. 
So it's a real kind of developing mishmash of regulations around the country on police use. On the private side, you know, there are some kind of background legal principles around uh, privacy protections that were kind of recognized in the old common law. Uh, these mm. are uh, known as privacy torts, things that they have names like intrusion on seclusion, uh, the kind of st- concept of like stalking, right, in mm-hmm. the common law. Um, and you can imagine maybe, depending on what a private co- corporation or individual was doing, maybe there could be one of those kinds of causes of action against them. But largely, we're going to have to look to our our lawmakers, legislators, to pass laws. And um, there are only three states in the country that have laws really targeted at biometric technologies, including face recognition technology, mm-hmm. uh, Illinois, Texas, and the state of Washington. And Illinois is the only one that really has teeth. And so in Illinois, it violates the law if a private company uses face recognition technology on somebody without their knowledge and their consent, uh, right? To capture their their face print, essentially, the, the right. unique geometry of their face uh, requires notice and consent. That's also the law in Texas and Washington, but in those states, uh, people can't sue to vindicate their rights directly, mm. only the state attorney general can. So, and they, those statutes have been really under-enforced. Um, there's a little bit of protection in California under the more general consumer privacy laws they have there. But in most states, it's really a free-for-all legally uh, on the, the corporate side, which is pretty dangerous for us. It means right. that you know we're in the position of just having to trust corporations not to abusively collect our information which has never worked before and isn't working now. <laughs> right. Real quick, you're talking about and the differences between those laws. Is that, I'm not a lawyer, so I'm curious. Is that what you mean when you refer to the private right of action? That's exactly right. Exactly right. So, you know, there, um, there's a, a debate going on in Congress right now about general consumer privacy laws. And there's a debate going on in state capitals around the country about consumer general consumer privacy laws and about specific biometric uh, protection laws like the that Illinois. The Illinois law is called the, the Biometric Information Privacy Act. And the debate around all of these bills is whether um, there should be a private right of action or not. And by private right of action, we mean do people whose rights have been violated, right? So in other words, you know, a corporation has collected and used their personal information without their consent. Do they have a right to go to court and sue to either ask for money damages to try to make them whole or to ask for an injunction, in other words, a court order telling the, the company to stop. A privacy law without a private right of action is never going to be a sufficient deterrent to co- companies. Uh, right. You know, State attorneys general, even ones that really are trying to protect their state residents, they don't, don't have the person power, they don't have the resources to investigate a fraction of the companies out there. And you know, they may reach some splashy settlements that may do a little deterrence, but it's never enough. People, as a matter of justice, need to be able to defend their own rights. In a matter of public policy, you just have to have enough of a threat to these companies that they take these laws seriously. Now, we we happily share pictures and videos of ourselves on social media all the time. <laughs> Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, I mean, you name it, right? It, they, they're dying for us to do it, and we happily do it. You know, these are ostensibly public spaces online. So who owns those images and videos once they're posted? And what rights do I have over how they might be shared with, with third parties? And then, you know, what about photos and videos that include me, but weren't posted by me? Yeah. So this is a question that I'm not an expert in, you know, it depends partly on the terms of service of the particular social media platform. It depends some on copyright law in some Mm. contexts, right? Um, The person who took the picture may have an argument that they have a copyright over it depending and it may depend where they post it whether you know there's 
fine print that made them waive that that copyright interest yeah. or whether they retain it. So there there are you know some some ways sometimes that people can try to control images that they have taken, uploaded online for a particular purpose, and then find that they are being repurposed. But it's hard, and uh, you know what? Once something is online and generally accessible to the public, there generally is going to be a First Amendment right for people to access that information and to download it and to make certain uses of it. And so, it uh, can be very hard. You know, if, if you haven't set the privacy settings on your accounts in such a way that you can control who has access to it, right? If it's something really accessible to the the whole world, who who clicks into that page, yeah then there's not a, not a lot of great options for controlling that information if it starts going in directions you didn't intend. But there are certainly ways that states and other lawmakers can try to, to let people retain control over the most sensitive aspects of those images. And, um, and biometric uh, identifier protection laws are one of those, right? The, you know, that Illinois law is really focused, uh, at least the, the part we've litigated under, um, and we'll talk, uh, I'm sure, in a, a minute about our, our lawsuit against this company, Clearview AI, mm-hmm. which is, I think, one of the most disturbing actors in, oh, yes. in the whole economy of face recognition companies. They obtain pictures from the internet in ways that a lot of people think are very unscrupulous, but um, we think is, is protected by the First Amendment. But then they do something to those pictures that's regulated under this law. They extract mm-hmm. people's biometric identifiers. They take mm-hmm. the face print through processing it through an algorithm. And that violates the state law because they didn't get consent to take your immutable biometric identifier, right? Like we all, all of us have one face. You can't replace your face <laughs> right. once it's taken. The state of Illinois decided this is sensitive enough that companies should only be able to take it with your consent. If a company does it without your consent, whether it's a picture they take of you in person on the street or they extract it from your photo online, they're equally liable under that law. And that's important. Another thing that we do, and social media, again, prompts us to do this, and we comply, uh, is when we post these photos and videos online, uh, they ask us to tag people, you know, in these things. In other words, identify people by faces, you know, do you know this person? Or is this, hey, this looks like your friend. Would you verify that this is your friend, Bob, you know, that's in this picture? How fun, you know, we'll let Bob know that you took a picture of him. You know, it's all social media stuff, right? Uh, But when, when we do this, aren't we really just helping them to train their own AI systems to find us and enable, you know, enabling surveillance technology in general? Yeah, I I think that's often the case. And yeah, people don't generally realize it, but a lot of, a lot of these companies, you know, these are for-profit companies. They're trying to, to make a profit off of something and particularly the ones that are, are quote unquote, free to the user, right? right? These major technology companies that are, you know, the Facebooks and Googles of the world, right? They're not charging a subscription fee. So they're making their money somewhere where are they making it off of our data. And they're doing that in lots of ways through targeted advertising, through repackaging information, but also, you know, they're, as you suggested, companies out there that um, are, they're always trying to make the new, new software product that they can sell in some other way or market in some other way or use to attract more people to their platform. And if they're sitting on this incredibly rich trove of data that they can use to train their algorithms, then they're often going to use it. And if they can get their users to help them train the algorithms even more precisely, they're going to do that too. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's a real concern and it's, you know, it goes to the, the failure of the U.S. to have comprehensive privacy laws that make sure that companies 
can only do stuff with our data that we actually expect them to do that's within the scope of the service we expect them to be providing and that's based on our our consent and our kind of knowledge of it and that we just don't have that in most of the country right i mean in a lot of i've said this multiple times I, in some ways i don't blame these companies because they're publicly traded companies with a fiduciary responsibility basically to make as much money as possible for their shareholders. I mean, that is just the kind of way capitalism is structured, <laughs> at least in the US and probably everywhere. And so, you know, this is money on the table. I, I understand that they are driven to monetize this data as much as possible. And it's and so the only thing that would prevent that would be legislation and slash regulation. Would you agree? Yes, I think that's, that's largely the case. I mean, you know, there, there are some there are some cases of you know federal and state regulatory agencies being able to use kind of broader protect consumer protection laws to protect people. So, for example, there was a, a company called Everalbum that had two Everalbum and Ever AI, one company. They had two business models uh, um, or two things that looked like separate things that they were hmm. providing. One was a cloud-based photo storage site, right? You could upload load your family photos, sort them, make share them with other family members, etc. Right? There are lots of these services that we've used over the years. They also had a face recognition product that they were hmm. building to try to sell to whoever, to law enforcement, to private entities. Well, it turns out without telling their photo storage customers, mm. they were using all of those uploaded photos to train <laughs> the face recognition algorithm, right? They had this incredible trove. But right. What you need to train a face recognition album, a, a face recognition algorithm are a whole bunch of pairs or sets of different photos of the same person. And so you tell, you tell the program, Okay, here are you know four photos of Nate, seven photos of Bob, sixteen photos of Lupita, right? And mm -hmm. you know now like the program just as over time is going to learn right. what are the attributes of a face that mean you can identify two or more different photos of that same face and what distinguishes it from others. And so if you're sitting on thousands and thousands and thousands of family photos that people have uploaded, where you can tell by user how valuable, right? Right. Well, they right. did not inform their users that this is what they were doing. And the Federal Trade Commission went after them and mm. forced them to um, not only delete all the face recognition data that they gathered without people's knowledge or consent, but actually to delete the algorithm, destroy the algorithm oh, wow. that they built using that, which is great. I mean, like very creative uh, enforcement by the federal government. But that's, you know, the, the claim there basically was you didn't tell you materially misrepresented mm -hmm. in the fine print what you were doing. And if companies say in the fine print what they're going <laughs> right. to do, then the FTC no isn't going to go no after them for read. that. Right? Right. Yeah. And, that, and, and that's why we do, as you said, why we need strong laws at the state and federal level. Uh, we just, you know, we don't have something like Europe has, right? The, the GDPR, the general data protection regulation isn't perfect. Uh, right. It wouldn't map perfectly into the United States for various reasons, right. but we, we just don't have anything that looks remotely like that, which means it's a free for all with some of the most sensitive personal data we have out there. Well, and I recall hearing stories that when Google back in, back when 411 was a for pay service uh, on your cell phone or at your home, uh, you would have to pay for that. Well, Google had Google 411 for a while and, and they offered that for free. And my understanding is that behind the scenes, what they were really doing is training voice AI. Uh, based on that, because they eventually quit, like they had enough data, like, okay, we got what we're looking for. So now we're going to shut it down because it costs money to run. And we mm -hmm. got what we wanted out of this. And they quit that. I don't know if that story is true or not, but that I always heard that about that. It, you mentioned Clearview AI, and we definitely want to talk about them today. So they're a company that provides facial recognition service claiming to be able to identify, you know, a random person from just about any photo. And they do this because they have amassed, as you've alluded to, a, a huge 
trove of pictures from social media and other places. But if you would kind of explain to the audience how their service works and how good is it at putting names to faces? And then, you know, maybe, you know, like, for instance, how many unique people do they have in their database? Because they've, they've made pretty astounding claims. So, yeah, Clearview AI is, it's a unique and uniquely disturbing <laughs> company. So, you know, to understand what's different about them, and then I'll, I'll describe them. You have to understand that that most face recognition companies in this country and most around the world, uh, their business model is that they they create an algorithm, they train it on photos, they teach it how to you know how to identify faces better or worse, and a lot of these are quite glitchy, but they're slowly getting better over time, and then they sell the the program, the algorithm, to some user with a license. And they expect the user to bring the matching database of photos that they want to be able to use to identify people. So if it's law enforcement, it might be a mugshot database. Mm. Or if it's you know state police, it might be the state DMV or state secretary of state's right. driver license photo database. If it's a private company, maybe it's their a set of employee photos because mm. they want to control mm-hmm. access to the secure part sure. of their facility with a face recognition company uh, program, right? So you have some set of, of photos that you're going to use to match the unknown person, right? It's called the probe photo, right? So you present yourself to the security checkpoint at your company, they scan your face, matches to you, your employee photo, you go in. Police have a you know unknown suspect photo from some investigation. They try to match it against mugshots in their database to see if if it provides a match. What Clearview has has done is built a system that does not rely on the user, the subscriber, to bring their own matching database. Instead, Clearview has been steadily scraping the internet for every photo with a human face in it that they can find. Uh, And using that as this incredibly invasive and far-reaching matching database. So they they have said that um, the last last time they publicly uh, released numbers, which was uh, probably a little more than a month ago, they said that they had 20 billion photos Mm. in their database. That's billion with a B. Uh, Their goal is within, uh, within the next year, by the end of this year, effectively, they want to have 100 billion oh, photos of people. So they scrape these photos from social media, from you know local newspapers, right, from uh, employee employer websites that have you know the roster of employees with their mm-hmm. glossy head headshots, mm-hmm. wherever they can find photos online. They ingest those photos, they run them through a face recognition system that extracts a face print. Right, which is a, a kind of numerical, geometric, algorithmic representation of the unique attributes of any face. And they store it in this, this humongous database, billions and billions of these face prints associated with a photo, also associated with the URL from which that photo was taken online. And what they say is that their users, their subscribers, can upload a, a photo of an unknown person and virtually instantaneously get a match to all the mm. photos of that person that have appeared <laughs> online. Clearview says that when it reaches the 100 billion photo mark uh, within the next year, they think that they will be able to identify 95% of humans on Earth. Oh, my God. Uh, It's incredible and incredibly chilling power. I mean, um, you know, this when Clearview started uh, before we sued them and and some other uh, class action attorneys sued them, they were making this this platform and this database and this algorithm available basically to anyone who is interested for a free trial or prescription. You know, there's a, amazing New York Times reporting about wealthy New York City socialites who got access to this. Uh, one guy, a grocery store magnate, uh, who was sitting in a fancy restaurant, saw his daughter come in with a date who he didn't recognize, oh, never boy. met before, and so gave his phone to a waiter and said, could you just go snap a, a photo of, of that guy sitting with my daughter? Then ran him through and instantaneously identified his daughter's 
date instead wow. of doing the normal human thing to do, which is like, <laughs> hey, how's it going? I'm going to walk over and say hi. Right. You had you know companies like um, like Macy's, uh, other retail chains that were using it, private investigators, um, major league sports franchises who were using it, banks. So all these all these private entities, and then you had law enforcement around the country using it. And there are no rules, there are no restrictions, right? You have a have an account, upload whatever photo you want, and instantaneously match it to photos online. We don't know how many unique individuals mm. those 20 billion right. photos are now. Obviously not 20 billion people because right, right. there aren't that many around, <laughs> but I have no idea how many that is. And you know, when they get to a hundred billion, it will be nearly everyone on earth who has ever put a photo or had someone else put a photo on the internet. But I don't know what the actual quantification is. Right. It's, it's a lot. All right. So you guys filed suit against these guys, I think back in 2020. And I think you recently won the case. Uh, tell us what happened there and what it means you know, for their service going forward. And how might this case impact other companies who are offering or hoping to offer similar services? Uh, and you know, do you guys have any other cases pending uh, in this area? The major story of this case is, is about the importance of us residents, citizens of this country, pushing our lawmakers to enact strong privacy laws, particularly strong biometric privacy laws. We sued in Illinois under the Illinois Biometric Information Privacy Act, the only state that has a law with a private right of action that lets people sue to vindicate their rights. Uh, We sued Clearview representing a group of organizations in Illinois that work with communities of people who have really particular, very concrete things to fear from a company and a service that can instantaneously identify anyone or everyone anytime. So organizations that work with survivors of sexual assault and domestic violence, Mm. that work with undocumented immigrants, with current and former sex workers, uh, organizations that um, advocate for people's right to protest. And we're able to, uh, you know, really explain to the court, not only why Clearview is violating the Illinois law, the Illinois law, again, requires companies to provide notice to people if they want to collect a biometric identifier, like a face print, and to get their consent. Right. So Clearview was obviously not right. you know, collecting consent from people, from Illinois residents or anyone else. Right. They're just scraping the internet and processing it. They don't care about consent. So they clearly, in our view, were violating the law. But we also were able to kind of show the court, you know, this isn't, I mean, it's enough to just show they're violating the law, but also this isn't just some abstract fear right? Some abstract legal concern, you know, here are organizations working with populations of people who would actually be materially harmed by say a stalker or an abusive ex-partner being able to scour the internet to find the latest social media posts of someone they're trying to track down who may have moved, who may have even changed their name, but they can't change their face. Uh, Not really. Right. You know, you can think of all, all kinds of other situations where, yeah, Protecting against this invasion would be important. Witness protection uh, so program. We, we filed, <laughs> sorry. Somebody in a witness protection program. Exactly. Yes, witness protection program. You know, some somebody who, you know, what wants to go to a protest and but does not want to be harassed afterwards by some vigilante who who wants to go after them after they're at a Black Lives Matter protest or a pro-abortion protest or, or what have you. So we we sued Clearview in in 2020 on behalf of these organizations under that Illinois law. Clearview brought a motion to dismiss, making some jurisdictional arguments that they lost on, but also making a, an argument under the First Amendment mm-hmm. uh, that was really important to us. Um, you know, the, the ACLU, of course, is we're a First Amendment organization. We're the nation's longest standing and really premier advocate for a robust set of free speech rights um, yep. to protect everybody's right, right. to express themselves. Um, and what Clearview said, uh, which we disagree with, and, and we prevailed on this, Clearview basically said, 
look, we're just, we're processing information in order to say something, right? We are taking photos that are publicly available on the internet, like anyone else could. We are then running them through an algorithm, doing data processing, which is, you know, working with information. And then we are saying something with it. We're conveying a message, which is this, you know, this photo looks like that photo. We think this photo is actually a photo of Nate. And they said that, you know, that that's first amendment protected, that's free speech. You can't, Illinois law can't apply to us. What we said and what the, the court agreed with, you know, we, we agree with them that they can actually scrape photos off the internet mm. mm-hmm. and that's protected by the first amendment. Mm-hmm. You know, that's unsettling a lot of people. Uh, well, a lot of the companies, companies too, because are... Facebook and some of those companies push back saying, you know, you're exactly. violating our terms of service or something. And that's exactly uh, right. They, they sent cease and desist letters, which clearly obviously hasn't complied with. But we, we think the First Amendment is is really you know a pretty significant protection for an individual or a company to take publicly available information off of the internet. And you know it's also protected under the First Amendment to say something about it, to say, these two photos seem like they look alike. But the core of Cleary's conduct is conduct, not speech, right? They are extracting, they are collecting a biometric identifier, a the unique immutable map of our face that nobody else shares. And what we said to the court and the court agreed is that that's conduct. Now it's conduct that's tied to the speech at either end. So the first amendment has something to say, but here, if the state has a strong enough justification, they can put reasonable limits. There's not a ban. They're not saying you can never face print people. They're saying you have to give notice and get consent. Mm. And that's reasonable. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it's perfectly tailored to the harm. The harm we're worried about is people lose control of their biometric identifiers, which can have security consequences, right? I mean, you know, as as banks start to use biometrics, including face prints for account access, all kinds of other businesses are verifying identity these ways, right? Losing control of that means identity fraud is a possibility. And for the privacy reasons, all these tracking concerns we have, what we're trying to do is let people maintain control. And how do you keep control? Make sure people have to consent before you can take it. So the court agreed with us. This is a reasonable regulation that gives people control. It doesn't reach too too widely. It it's okay under the First Amendment. So we we won at that stage, uh, headed into discovery, and then um, entered into settlement discussions. Uh, and just a couple months ago, we settled the case with Clearview hmm. in a way that that we think provides really strong protections, not just in Illinois actually, but around the country. Oh, good. So as a result of this settlement, Clearview is permanently banned from providing access to its humongous face print database to virtually any private entity in the US. There are some exceptions, limited exceptions that are tied to um, some narrow exceptions in the Illinois law. But basically Clearview is now out of the business of selling subscriptions to the space print database to private companies and private individuals, which is great. In Illinois, they also uh, have to uh, basically stay out of, of Illinois totally for the next five years, which includes not selling its service to law enforcement agencies Hmm. in Illinois. What Clearview can continue doing everywhere outside of Illinois is working with law enforcement. And that's um, largely because the Illinois law has an exception for government contractors. Okay. And so we just, you know, we did the best with the tool we had. The tool doesn't reach that far. So Clearview has really pivoted to this business model of selling its service to cops at the federal, state, and local level. uh, And they're making a lot of money doing that now. All right, sorry, I want to dig on that a little bit because it, it, I'm curious because Clearview has said I've seen multiple interviews with the, the the founder and CEO, and he says, "Well, we only give this basically <laughs> paraphrasing to the good guys, you know, which <laughs> law enforcement." But I mean, if, I'm sure that there are authoritarian regimes that would like to get their hands on this information. I I don't know what if any restrictions they have on uh, sale to to those kind of agencies and organizations. I mean, even within the U.S., right? I mean, they, they could be abused here within the United States as well. But the other aspect of this that bothers me is. 
this end run around the Fourth Amendment where the where the law enforcement and perhaps intelligence agencies don't have direct access to this legally speaking, but by going to a, an independent private third party and buying it like anybody else could buy it, it seems to me that they are getting around that. Uh, could you talk to that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, the you know, the idea that we should just trust the company because they're just selling to the cops is, uh, you know, doesn't compute for me. There is a really good reason why the framers of the Constitution focused on restraining police power and putting some friction into that process, right? Making, uh, making sure that there's a warrant requirement before police want to do invasive searches of us. And this is, this is invasive. It's, it's invasive and it's prone to error. Uh, and Clearview is selling a service that gives incredible power to police. And in most parts of the country, police don't have any regulations or very good regulations and controls on how face recognition technology is used. So, you know, what does that mean practically? It means, uh, you know, in a lot of parts of the country, most parts of the country, there's nothing stopping police from investigating any crime they want. And, you know, to be sure, there are a lot of crimes out there, right? <laughs> right. So, you know, you have a <laughs> photo of a jaywalker, run it through, right? There's, you know, most most places in the country don't have like a serious crime requirement. Hmm. Clearview certainly isn't imposing it. Right. Most places in the country don't require a warrant. Right. So you can have police just on a hunch, just with whatever photo of whatever person they think is a suspect running it through. Most police departments and states in the country don't have quality control requirements on the input photos. Right. So mm. the the accuracy of a face recognition match is highly dependent on the quality of the mm. input photo, the so-called mm. probe photo. Yeah. Right. If you have, you know, like a driver's license quality photo, well lit from the front, right, straight on, not blurred, not shadowed, the system's going to do better because it can discern more features. You have, you know, kind of the the normal quality you would get, you know, snapped off of a, su a surveillance system, right? A CCTV camera or some passerby, right? You know, you can expect a lot of those photos are going to be from an angle, maybe from the top down. There's a baseball cap that's hiding part of the, the face. Someone's wearing a mask. You know, it's three-quarter angle. It's blurry. It's at a distance. It's not well lit, right? Any of those factors are going to decrease the accuracy. Do you have police making ad hoc decisions about what to put into the system, without judicial oversight in most cases, without a limitation on the type of crime they can investigate, and then relying on the results to take investigative action against people. Results that that in a significant number of cases are likely not going to be correct. And we, you know, Clearview has submitted uh, its algorithm to testing through the a federal agency that does testing hmm. of accuracy of face recognition systems. Okay. Uh, they just recently did this. They had not for years. Uh, it's the, the National Institute for Standards Technology, yep. NIST. And they do testing for a, a whole lot of companies that they're sort of like the, the gold standard benchmark for accuracy. But that testing is not in real world conditions, right? It's in mm -hmm. test conditions. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Clearview says they have very high accuracy rates. And uh, that seems to be true in relatively in the tests that they did for NIST. But that tells us very little about how it works when random beat cop gets access to the subscription <laughs> right. and uploads whatever photo and then goes to a judge and says, oh, yep, we got a match. That's uh, that's probable cause. Let's go arrest. Right. That that's really dangerous. Well, and there was even one weird case I heard that, <laughs> that made the news because I think it involved a, a famous actor and I'll probably get the actor wrong. But there was a case where they were the, the, the police were looking for a suspect and they had a drawing of the suspect. I think uh, an artist rendering, and it looked like Nicolas Cage or something like that. W w Woody Harrelson. I Woody know that. Yes, yes. You're so so close. Ever so close. Yep. 
<laughs> so tell tell us about that story because it's yeah, fascinating. Yeah, I mean, in, incredible. This was um, there was a report that the um, the Georgetown Law School Center on Privacy and Technology put out where they got records from New York. This was the, an NYPD uh, operation where they yes they had a a really low quality photo of somebody. I don't know what the crime was. It might have been you know uh, someone at a convenience store who stole something. I, I can't remember, but they had a photo that they tried to run, like a still from a surveillance camera. They they tried to run through their face recognition system. It wasn't, wasn't Clearview. It was their NYPD's own system. They tried to run it through, didn't work because it wasn't high quality enough or who knows, the you know, number did, just didn't spit back a reliable match. So then yet the officers are sitting there looking at this photo and they say, you know who this guy looks like? Looks like Woody Harrelson. So they go online, they get a photo of Woody Epping Harrelson, and they run that through the system. That's not what the system's supposed to do. The system's not a celebrity lookalike contest. I mean, it's really incredible. And it's it's hilarious. But then you remember, this is the police who are about to arrest somebody right. based on this not-so celebrity lookalike match, right? You, you know, other cases, uh, other investigations that the Georgetown folks uncovered where police didn't have a photo, they had a composite sketch, right? They had some police sketch artist who asked, you know, they ask a witness a bunch of questions. Right. You've seen this on, on police procedurals, right? right? They come up with this picture that like looks kind of like the person. Face recognition systems are not trained on composite sketches. That's not a photo. They're trained on photos, right? You now have li- a line drawing that you're going to put in. <laughs> something looks kind of like it. Uh, and so you have police just making it up. You know, the police also taking photos that, that are not of sufficient quality because they're at an angle because the suspect's eyes are closed mm. and using Photoshop to either rotate the photo oh, wow. and fill in the hidden half with a mirror image uh-huh. or this Georgetown report found police taking photos of suspects with closed eyes, going online, finding photos of people with open eyes that seem to have like a relatively similar skin tone ish, right? Like models, right? Just mm-hmm. like photos online taking a screen grab wow. of the eye section of there and photoshopping that on top of the closed eyes. You had some open eyes, right? Wow. That's not how, like now no. you have a composite, right. a composite image, right? So all these, you know, off label, so to speak uses, which are not how the systems are trained, not how they're supposed to be used. But again, now you have police making very consequential decisions about who to investigate and who to arrest. And, you know, the part of the, what's, what's really dangerous about this is that there's a lot of research out there about machine suggestibility about how people inherently, as a cognitive matter, trust machine decisions. Oh, sure, right, right yeah. It's, right, it's, you know, the, the computer said it, right. so it must be true. Right. right? We, you know, even people who kind of know, who've been told, who've been trained, like computers have error rates, algorithms are best guesses, right? right, right. They're glitchy, they're programmed by humans, et cetera. Even if you know that, there's just a, right. a suggestibility bias yeah, when yeah. a com- computer tells you a thing. And so now you have the, the investigation going off in this direction based on what the computer said, which may implicate the wrong people, or it may involve, you know, kind of mass surveillance of a quality that maybe is accurate, but implicates our liberty interests, right? Turns us into something that is not the free and open society we expect, because now we're looking over our shoulder every moment because police are identifying us instantaneously. And a platform like Clearviews is the most chilling manifestation of, manifestation of that, that danger, uh, you know, hooking Clearview up to real-time or recorded video yeah. would be tremendously dangerous and, right. and really give a, a super chilling power to the police. All right. So there's a couple interesting other cases involving Clearview that that, that are, have slightly different connotation that I want to get your take on. So first of all, there have been reports that Clearview has made their technology available to 
the military in Ukraine so that they can identify dead soldiers and not just Ukrainian soldiers, Russian soldiers. And they are notifying the relatives of the dead Russian soldiers that they are dead. I, I, I don't know. I, I've looked into this. and I haven't seen this. So I don't, I'm curious if you know, is this a tactful sort of a humanitarian gesture that they are doing? Or is it really sort of a propaganda psyops thing? And and then how does, what's the ACL, ACLU stance on this sort of a use for this technology? Yeah. So, um, you know, the ACLU, we have a, a very limited mandate to work on constitutional and legal issues within the United States. So, you know, I, I don't think we have an institutional position on, mm-hmm. you know, a foreign military using face recognition to identify people who have been killed. You know, I will say generally, like, there are always going to be particular use cases that are going to be really sympathetic. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's certainly true of Clearview and face recognition. And it's yep. true of, you know, any number of surveillance technologies. And the I think what's really, what we have to be really alert to is making sure that our public policy and our legal decisions aren't driven by this kind of skewed presentation of the most sympathetic right. instances, right? You know, Clearview, Clearview has been being used by law enforcement and private individuals for years, right? They now had to cut off their private business, but used for for lots of investigations that are not particularly important or sense or or sympathetic. Lots of, you know, just playing people playing around with it in privacy invasive ways. That's not what Clearview is talking about. Clearview, you know, Clearview wants to talk about police using their system in Ukraine, you know, military in Ukraine. They want to talk about using it to identify insurrectionists who are at the Capitol on January 6th. They want to talk about using it in uh, child sexual abuse uh, mm-hmm. investigations, you know, all particular use cases that a lot of people would think are pretty sympathetic ways for law enforcement to right. be using its resources. But we're not talking about a platform that is just useful for the worst of the worst crimes, right? We're talking about a platform that provides this hugely privacy invasive and extraordinarily powerful tool whenever police want to use it, right? right? So that's why we need, that's why, you know, we have a fourth amendment that applies generally. Uh, That's why we have privacy laws at the state level that apply generally. That's why we have, uh, you know, states that have banned police from using face recognition at all. We have, you know, other states, the state of Maine um, has allowed some police use of face recognition technology, but really constrained it. Only police can only use one system operated by the state police and the state uh, Bureau of Motor Vehicles. They can't use a system like Clearview, untested, not mm. in police control. Mm. So it's it's centralized only on a probable cause showing, only for serious serious crimes. You know, in in New Jersey, the state attorney general is in the process of putting limitations on general police use of face recognition technology. But one of the first things he did is ban all police in the state from using Clearview because mm. of the concerns about its privacy impacts and concerns that you have this this system totally in corporate hands, right? Like Clearview runs every part of it. And so now the cops are just supposed to trust that Clearview is not going to make misuse of uploaded photos. Um, And in fact, you know, one of the, so the the New York Times broke, broke the story on Clearview. Clearview was not publicly known until a New York Times expose in January of 2020. Uh, And the the reporter, an excellent investigative journalist who works on privacy issues, Kashmir Hill, mm-hmm. had gotten a, a privacy activist had, had through a FOIA request, gotten some records from the Atlanta Police Department that mentioned Clearview and thought, huh, this is interesting. Never heard of this. Started digging a little more, provided them to the this Times reporter. She started digging more. 
and was able to find some some police uh, in local departments who had trial accounts or paid accounts to Clearview and asked them to like if they would just demonstrate how it worked to her. And a couple of them were happy to do it. And she said, "Okay, like, you know, I'm not going to give you some random person's photo without their consent. So here, snap a photo of me. Here's some photos of me. Run them up through the system. And they did it. But very quickly, Clearview figured out somehow that they were running photos of a New York Times reporter and started shutting them down. And she got sort of routed into this kind of like wonderland of oh, corporate wow. communication. I had not heard that aspect of that. Them, right. Uh, and that means that Clearview was looking at the photos oh, being wow. uploaded by police. So now you have this private company sitting in some kind of snooping role on police investigations in a way that police don't understand. So lot, lots and lots of concerns <sighs> and lots of reasons why we shouldn't just trust a company like this, why we need strong legal controls and a lot of skepticism. Well, and, you know, and the police and all the folks working in law enforcement, I mean, we, we like to I- I idealize them, but I mean, they're humans too. And they're going to, I mean, given the opportunity, someone somewhere is going to abuse systems like that for their own nefarious purposes as well. That, that's right. And, it, and you know, it, it might be today, it might be investigating the town gadfly who's really annoying the chief of police at every town meeting, right? And just trying to dig up dirt on her. Tomorrow, it might be an officer trying to stalk their, their ex-romantic partner, yeah. right? And- they have easy login access that doesn't require a warrant. It's, you know, that's right. why we have procedural protections, right? The next day, it might be police showing up at a Black Lives Matter protest and trying to identify everyone there so they can start following them home. Who knows? You know, right. there are lots of reasons why we put controls on government power. It's because in a democratic and free society, just trust us, it's in our mode of operation. All right. What, so there's one more aspect to this, and I think you might have a diff, uh, we might come down differently on this particular one, and that is Clearview is now offering uh, what we've talked about to, so far as this many to one matching, where we're, we're looking at many faces to you know to randomly identify one unknown one. Uh, they're offering what they call a one to one matching service now for schools, government offices. You know, this might be something similar to what you're going through uh, at the airport to get identified, where. You are claiming to be somebody and you are trying to verify that you are that person and they are, and they are operating off of a limited set of photos. I'm guessing this this would fall under what you would consider a more acceptable use of this technology. I, yeah, that kind of one-to-one matching is definitely less susceptible to abuse. Um, it is still still prone to problems that we should be concerned about, particularly when used by government, right? Partly because of the error rate problem. Uh, so, you know, what what happens if you present yourself at some government building or at a you know TSA checkpoint to get into the airport and the system says, nope, not a match, not actually Nate Wessler, right? <laughs> like, what's your redress to say, no, actually, wait a minute, like, look at look at the actual photo on my license. You know, there has to be some way yeah. to prove. Um, and, you know, we, we saw a, a really good example of the danger of relying too much on a similar kind of face recognition matching tool. We saw um, in the last uh, last couple of years of the pandemic around people trying to get public benefits, uh, mm-hmm. right, like employment uh, unemployment insurance. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of states turned to this company IDME. Yeah. When the pandemic hit and businesses across the country were just closing down wholesale, hopefully temporarily, we thought, but right. Yeah. So federal government poured a lot of money into the states to provide uh, extension of an increase in unemployment benefits, which is what uh, I think substantially kept our economy from completely tanking at the time. But states needed to figure out a way to deal with this huge surge of applications. And states, you know, they want to try to make sure that people are getting the benefits who are entitled to them and you are who you say you right. are. So a lot of them contracted with this company, ID.me, 
which um, part of its identity verification system was a face recognition matching uh, system where you supposed to like upload your government ID, right? And then uh, a selfie basically, or you you log into this, you know, kind of live portal and it takes a picture of you and the system was glitchy. And when it failed and said, nope, you're not, you're not actually a match. There was no good way for people mm. to go through kind of an appeal process. And you ended up, people ended up on these, you know, these like online voice call queues hours long to get to a representative, but then your internet connection dropped and you have to go back to the start of the line. And of course, you know, who uh, most needs to access government services, low income people without a job, right? who is least likely to have a high quality internet connection and a desktop computer, right? Or a good laptop, low income people without a job. So, you know, relying on these kind of technological solutions, uh, even in a one-to-one situation can be really risky. And so you need lots of protections around it, but not as dangerous to liberty overall as some of the other uses for sure. All right, last question before we go, and we, and we haven't even touched the service. Maybe we'll, we'll, we'll bring you back to talk about, you know, we've got license plate readers and Bluetooth tracking. And there's all, we're just touching the service of how we're being surveilled in public these days. But so for the audience, what can we do, if anything, to protect ourselves right now? I mean, I've heard everything from they, there are online sites that sell these weird sunglasses or makeup solutions or funky hats that are supposed to block facial recognition or whatever. But I mean, at a more practical level as consumers and citizens, what does the ACLU recommend that people do if they want to get involved in this and want to protect their rights in this particular area? Yeah, I mean, yeah, if, if you want to put some face paint on with a checkerboard <laughs> pattern, like more power to you. But we're not going to do that. So really, we need stronger laws. We, you know, people need to be contacting their state and federal lawmakers, uh, demanding biometric privacy laws and more generally consumer privacy laws that just protect our personal information against abuse. That that's critical thing number one. Uh, and until we have those legal frameworks, we really can't do enough to protect ourselves. Um, you know, there are some things that people can do to try to protect themselves you know, trying to be careful about and thoughtful about what you put online, you know, a lot of, you know, I have a a pretty young child. We try very hard not to get pictures of her up on social media and have told family members that, but at the end of the day, there's only so much you can do, Right. you know, uh, being thoughtful about the privacy settings on your accounts, right? Uh, If you have social media accounts with pictures that you would rather not be accessible to a company like Clearview, you know, trying to limit access to only people within your friend network, can help, right? So we can try to use technological solutions. You know, in, in other areas, it's things like, you know, being thoughtful about which apps on your phone have access to location services, right? Or mm-hmm. to your your photos, right? So there are some technological things we can do. But really, these are structural problems. And structural problems are not amenable to individual solutions. They're amenable to structural solutions. And, and that's why really, our system of laws has to catch up. All right, one quick follow-up. So if how can we support you in your efforts uh, here? If What kind of things might you want one of us to call you up about and say, hey, I think this is fishy, or hey, I'd like to get you guys involved? Uh, at what point can people call you up and get you involved in some of these cases? What are you looking to hear from us? Yeah, so um, you know, my, my work personally is largely focused on law enforcement practices, although also you know, like the Clearview case demonstrates, we sometimes are looking at, at the practices of corporations. Um, you know, I think one thing that people can do is is try to pay attention to what their local law enforcement and government agencies are doing. Try to figure out um, what new surveillance technologies they're contracting for, right? Looking at city budgets, mm-hmm. you know, filing public records requests. In most places, it's like actually pretty simple to file a public records mm-hmm. request for the local police department. They may not want to answer. 
may take a long time, but um, it's basically just a letter uh, saying, you know, under my state's public records laws, I would like information about whether you use face recognition, what face recognition companies you have a contract with. And then, you know, that's information that the ACLU might be interested in. Also that a local journalist might be able to write a story on. Mm, yeah. uh, so transparency really can go part of the way towards helping us understand what's going on out there. But then, you know, we we're always looking out for examples of, uh, you know, police arresting the wrong person based on a wrong face recognition match of uh, companies collecting our biometric identifiers in violation of a strong law like Illinois. And, you know, the problem is those can be very hard things to find yeah. uh, because the police and companies are trying for a good reason to keep them private, <sighs> right. to keep it secret, right? They, <laughs> they don't want to be held accountable. But those are the kind of things to keep an eye out for. And, you know, we, we all benefit from knowing more about what companies and the police are doing. All right, Nate, that's wonderful information. Thanks again so much for coming on the show and explaining all this to us. Very happy to talk. Thanks so much. Really glad to get Nate back on the show again. It's so much fun talking to him. He's got so many great stories. The whole thing with the facial recognition stuff and uh, Woody Harrelson and some some of those other stories were just mind-blowing. So anyway, thanks again uh, tonight for coming on the show, and we'll have to get him back sooner next time and not wait quite so long between between interviews. I did capture some other questions for Nate. Uh, being a lawyer and someone who argued a case in, in front of the Supreme Court, I had to ask him what that was like, what that experience was like. We talk a little bit about whether or not there should be cameras in the courtrooms, and I even ask him what he thinks about that leak of the draft opinion from the Supreme Court. So anyway, my patrons will get that bonus content soon. All right, next week, another news show as usual, and then an interview after that. And then I'm working on several other interviews down the line. So lots of great content. If you haven't already, subscribe. That, you, that way you won't miss any of this goodness. If you're enjoying the show, please recommend it to some other folks. Spread the word. I would also love to get some great five-star reviews on whatever app you're using to listen to this. There's usually some way to leave a review. I'd much appreciate that as well. So thanks again, everybody, for tuning in, and stay safe out there. And until next week, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down. <laughs>